the optimal life. Mary, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm so glad to be here, Nate. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I love talking to people in your line of work. The mental health piece is so important in today's society. So this fits in perfectly with things that I like to talk about. I believe things that my audience likes to hear about. Um, So I was looking at some of your work. You talk about neuroplasticity and how that allows us to change. Let's start there, Mary. What exactly is neuroplasticity and um, why is that so important? It's very important. So you dug right into it. I'm glad. Neuroplasticity is a really fancy word for the fact that you can change your brain, not just your thoughts, but your thoughts can change your brain. Your actions can change your brain. It's a lot like muscle memory. You can change the way your memories have even processed in your brain by changing your thoughts about them. So just like when you exercise and you're building muscle, it takes time and practice, but that's exactly how you change your brain with repetition. We call them reps in physical things, right? I mean, we do reps when we do physical workouts. It's repetitions, repetitions. That's what a rep is when you're lifting weight. Same thing with your brain. When you're trying to force your negative thoughts into more positive ones or productive ones, because I do believe in toxic positivity. I don't believe in just thinking to the positive. Negative things happen. I think COVID taught us that. I mean, you can't just go around and think positively. No, you really have to take positive processing. So in positive processing, you not only change your brain, you can actually do it at an epigenetic level, meaning it will, it, it repairs some of the DNA. They've discovered that trauma can be passed through the generations. So even that, you know, it'll get in the DNA somewhere like the fear or things like that will happen. But neuroplasticity means you can change your brain. Your brain doesn't fully develop to your 30. And after that, you can still change it. Right. For so long, I think the misconception was once that brain is fully developed, that's it. You're 30 years old. Good luck. Whatever kind of crap you deal with in your head, it's not going away. And what you're saying is that neuroplasticity scientifically proves they've we've proven, right? Yes. You are able to make changes. Now, you mentioned muscle memory and these different things. So talk, dive into a little bit more into that. Exactly how somebody that's gone through some trauma. How in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, what are, what are some of the things they're doing to change the brain? To what do you mean? How, like, like what how are to some change of the, the trauma? What are some of those memory? techniques that what are some of those techniques that allow them to start making changes internally? How does that work? Well, I'll tell you, it it works very well because first of all, and I make it really simple. First of all, you have to acknowledge the trauma. So many people just there, there's two, there's two extremes and I see it in my practice a lot. They either focus on the trauma and nothing but the trauma, or they focus on compartmentalizing it and going forward too quickly. Do you see how neither one is going to work? You cannot just drive through a windshield all the time. You have to check the rear view mirror occasionally. So first acknowledge the trauma. Do not try to cover it up or compartmentalized it. Compartmentalization gets a bad name. It's great for, you know, if something's happened that's traumatic and you've got to drive a car to get to the hospital, compartmentalize it when you're at a stop sign. I I get that, but you can only compartmentalize for a while. It's not sustainable. So people who try to compartmentalize trauma and don't deal with it, it will deal with them. It'll show up through reenactment. We know that rape victims often get, uh, you know, abused kids get raped as adults. Um, children who are beaten tend to be abused 
in their, and in adulthood, we carry these things around. So they have to acknowledge the trauma, first of all. And if it's overwhelming, please go see a professional. Then after you acknowledge it, because you have to feel it to heal it, then you start positively processing it. Like, what did I learn? Not from this, but what did I learn because of this? Because it's something that happened to them, not because of them. And even if it was something that they chose and it happened because of them, what did I learn from that? It's kind of like, it's kind of in a very simple way, a non, um, like a non, uh, uh, negative way to put it. So it's just like a little kid. You tell a little kid he can't touch an iron or a hot stove. What's he going to do? <laughs> and then how to, many he times wants to touch that yeah. stove so badly? Yeah. It's reactants. You know, he's you, uh, you can't tell me he's just going to hyper-focus on touching that stove, but he's only going to do that one or two times because he's going to learn, Oh, wow, that was traumatic. Don't do it. So that's, that is exactly how a brain, a brain can teach an infant that stove hot, don't touch it. I mean, dogs, cats, they do it. So if they can do it, we can do it too. So yes. So you've got to feel it to heal it. Then you positively process it, learn from it. And then I believe in post-traumatic growth because I'm just going to say it in a nicer way. The crappy things that happen to us are fertilizer. And you can either stay stuck in the manure or you can um, move forward from it. You can grow from it. You can use it for fertilizer. And that is exactly how I've dealt with trauma in my life because I've certainly had some. I think we all have had it, but I've had some pretty serious things happen. And that dawned on me. I had an epiphany about that. And I said, wow, yep, that fertilizer is what we use to make things grow. So we can grow from it or we can stay stuck in it. Which would you choose? Which would you choose, Nate? Right. Well, you know which one I would choose. Yes. <laughs> um, but though we see so many people choosing the opposite because they don't think they can grow from it. They think this is just too horrible. It's too wrong to ever be right. I even wrote a song about that one time. It may be too wrong to ever be right. You can acknowledge that, but you can also say, but I, where can I go and grow from here? Even if it's just finding purpose in your pain and don't not to make sense of the senseless, but to find purpose in that pain and move forward. What was causing you pain? Well, I, you know, I, I had abuse as a kid, plus the a thing that would, I'll just use an example that uh, my dad used to take me on house calls as a doctor. And at nine years old, um, I was, someone got in a horrible accident and he threaded me through the windshield of that accident. I was nine to put a tourniquet on a woman because I was nine and I was such a tiny little thing. Uh, I didn't succeed. So I had a lot of trauma around that. And, and I, you know, I will spare everybody the image I have to carry through in my head, but at nine years old, I lost a life that, that was pretty I, I would traumatic. Ask, I would ask if you're, if you're able to, can you dig into this? What exactly, what happened? I'm, I'm not following. For well, you. a woman ran into a ditch and my father was a physician. He was a, a police doctor and a woman ran into a ditch and he couldn't, she was because she was in a ditch, her car was like um, wedged into that ditch. They couldn't get the doors open. The windshield was cracked. So they, they broke the windshield and I was the only thing big enough to put through there to put a tourniquet on her. 
And so wow, they nine showed years me, old, threaded, nine, years old. nine years old, dad threaded me through the windshield. Uh, my mom even took pictures of it. So I don't understand that. And you're so trying to save this woman's life. She's I'm trying to out. put a tourniquet on her aorta in her arm. And I did not succeed. Absolutely. And you watched this woman die in front of you at nine years old. Yes, I did. Wow. Yes, I did. And I had many nightmares about it. Um, and I, I went, you know, went to a therapist when I was probably in my twenties, my father did apologize when I was in my forties or yeah, I think my late forties. And I said, what were you thinking? And he said, I was just trying to save someone's life. And I said, okay, but I was nine. <laughs> so, mm, that's so and other, th- other things happened too, but I went on other house calls with him that were, that were, um, equally horrific, but none where I lost, you know, I feel like I lost her her life that See, a your dad was trying to do his best. It sounds like mm-hmm. he was trying to do his yes. job. He was trying to do his duty, save this woman's life. Yes. And the only way. So in that he wasn't thinking again, I, I don't know what you would do if you're in that position, right? Because you're correct. You don't know what you would do. You don't know what you do, but, but in return for that attempt, you are putting your child in a really in a position that they're going to be really screwed up for a long time, even if that person survived, even if they survive, Mm -hmm. you may have had some trauma from that. Just seeing that being forced about, I mean, you must've been so confused nine years old. What in the world is happening? I, I, you know, I was, I really, I wasn't confused. I was so infused with my father's profession. Um, I was, you know, the, the good little kid, I was just so infused with making them happy and trying to be the people pleaser kid that, you know, is everybody happy kid. I was the family clown, the family fix everything, make everybody happy. Um, I think he was doing the best he could, but uh, I don't think he thought, and I was a very mature little kid. I was like real peaceful and, and a happy go lucky kid, but yeah, not, not a good plan. Let me ask but, you, Mary, let me ask you in those weeks and uh, how, how long does it, Take until you start realizing, oh, I've got some things because of that one specific event that I'm carrying with me into my adolescence, my teenage years. How long did it take till you started realizing that? I was, I think I was about 15 or 16 because I remember I was having a lot of nightmares about, I was just having bloody nightmares. There's bleeding all over me. People just bleeding all over me. I did not put those things together. I had compartmentalized it as a child right? You can, that's so traumatic when, when something's severely traumatic happens to children or adults, and especially children, they compartmentalize it to the point where, where they have amnesia. They don't remember it. They don't recall it. They put it out of their mind just to survive, to survive the survivor guilt is what is what I had now. Now that said, I was about 15, but before we move on, I want to tell you, I paused and asked myself the question, not at 15 when I recognized it and went and got help and processed it out. And I can talk to you about all this without too much emotion, because when I went to graduate school and then we all had to go to therapy to do that too, to be a therapist, you need to go to therapy. Um, I realized, I said, okay, what did I learn from that? Do you know that when combat veterans come in my office and they take a look at me and I look like a cross between Linda Ronstadt and Valerie Bertinelli from the 70s or 80s. They're going to go, what do you know about my trauma? And occasionally I will give them a snippet of the story I just told you. And many of them have said to me, yeah, yeah, you're good. (laughs) You're qualified. So do you see how there's purpose in that pain? 
that it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make what my father did right. It doesn't make what what I couldn't do as a child. I just couldn't tie it tight enough and nobody had a tourniquet. It was just, it was a shirt. You know, I just was too little to tie it tight enough. And even if I had, she might not have made it. But the point is, is what did I learn from that? I learned what it feels like a combat veteran feels when they can't save their friend on the field, or they can't save somebody, or they've got to, they've got to make a choice they don't want to make or they just, they don't have the equipment necessary and they have survivor guilt. So it helps me help them move past it. Does it make sense of what happened? No. Does it, does it say, oh, there's a reason for everything? No, please don't. I don't think there's a reason for everything. Tell that, tell that to the Ukrainians right now. There's no reason for them. Yeah. For that. Sometimes, sometimes there's nothing that justifies anyone's no. type of action. No, or- but, but when they rebuild, then they're going to find purpose in that pain. And that day will come someday. There's always a rebuild after tragedy. I wish more people would learn from history. Uh, we don't, but yes. Yeah, so there, there's purpose. It's purpose in that pain because your show is about optimal things. So the optimization of tragedy is not to make sense of it, not to say everything happens for a reason. It doesn't not to say whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, it actually makes you weaker. It does makes you physically weaker, makes your immune system bad. But is there some purpose in it? Is there some way I could employ this experience to help someone else? Then there's some camaraderie then in the healing of one another, you know, anyone who's in a therapeutic setting will tell you that they learn from their clients too. They're not healing us. We've gone through the healing work but we're helping them heal. And in doing so, it's covering a little bit more. It's stitching up a little bit more of that past. So I so think- So what do you attribute that to? You said that you mentioned that you're able to talk about this in a fairly calm and collected manner. You're not emotional, but I assume that you at some point probably were when you were in your teenage years into your college, oh, yeah. into your graduate. <laughs> oh, yeah. right? You were emotional. And then you were doing all the work. You were, you were talking it out. You were going to therapy. You were doing- neuroplasticity was happening naturally in that state. What were some of the things that you attribute? If you look back, like what were some, Oh, that's easy. And don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger here. I started meditating when I was in my twenties, I was doing transcendental meditation. My dad taught me that. So same dad who did that to me, he learned TM. He, his brother had, my father's brother had committed his, it was his half brother. He had committed suicide. So what made him a better psychiatrist, didn't it? And it did, but it's like physician heal thyself, but he did teach me biofeedback and uh, meditation and meditation is the quickest way to neuroplasticity. And if people do not like the word meditation, just, can you think of it as daydreaming? You just sit quietly, think of beautiful thoughts. You replace any negative thoughts. I call it replace and erase. So when you embrace the negative thought and then you replace it with the positive one in meditation, just quiet meditation, then it erases it. The neuroplasticity begins because your conscious mind is in touch with your subconscious mind. It's the connector. Meditation is the mediator between your subconscious and your conscious mind. So then you're conscious of your subconscious. So if talking about that story, I did feel my heart pound or my heart race. I could just go, okay, that was then. This is now. And in meditation, you put some of those things to rest. You put them in their place. You're not compartmentalizing them anymore. You're integrating them as a part of your life, as an experience instead 
of a tragedy that you can't fix. And it's an experience that you were there and you're here now. What do you do with that? I hope that makes sense to someone. Were you doing that daily? Oh, yes. I still do it. I still meditate daily. And I can tell on the days I don't. (laughs) I really can. You can feel a difference. Do you meditate twice a day for like 20 minutes each time? Well, that's, that's, that's optimal. But usually, usually I do about 20 minutes in the morning and at night, I will probably put in maybe 10 minutes and then uh, watch something really humorous. I will tell you that if you watch something really humorous to you, whatever humor is to you, as long as it isn't dark, dastardly humor, but whatever's humorous to you, it releases dopamine right before you go to sleep. So it's, it sets that brain that's just about to go into that twilight state. So I like to meditate right after I get out of bed. I mean, immediately get up. I love how Jerry Seinfeld said it because he's a meditator. Who would think, right? Who would think? But Jerry Seinfeld said, he goes, I thought it was so stupid to get up, get out of bed, brush my teeth and then meditate. He said it didn't make sense. But that morning brain is very, very easy to suggest. And it sets you up for the whole day. Yes. Yes. It really does. And at night, at night, it's great too. But in the morning, it's really imperative to meditate. For me, it is in the morning. But do it at any time of day. I mean, honestly, sometimes in between, if I have horror stories that I'll hear in between um, clients, I'll I'll even do a walking meditation. I'll walk outside and just get very still. And I'll just start noticing mindful things like cute little bird, nice little dog, things like that. Wow. That's a form of meditation. So this has been the number one. That's been the number one healer for you. Absolutely. Because I could like embrace the thought, like I could go into meditation, just saying, Oh, this is bothering me. So how can I, how can I change the way I look at this? So I'll reframe it. And then I just start thinking about the future. What I want the future to look like. I do guided meditations where I start with gratitude and then I start thinking about the future and then kind of a blessing. I'll, I'll evoke from, you know, everyone, I'm not here to say anything about that other than just support from whatever you believe in something greater than yourself, not watching you, but watching over you big difference in semantics, isn't it? And changing the semantics that happened to you during trauma. Let me ask you, Mary, has that event stuck with you every single day since you were nine years old? Have you thought about it in some fashion? No, I have. I have not. I used to, I actually had something worse than that happen that does still stick with me every day. And in meditation, I'm working on it. I still do every single day. It's been six years now that something, my brother passed away in a tragic way. And I will spare you that. That's, I don't want anyone to have that image in their head. So Mm. that one I think about, but actually in his death, that started bringing me back to life because it really brought me back to Oh my gosh, I was keeping family secrets. I was so codependent. It made it just stared me in the face. Wow. This this is going to force me to to open myself up to the fact that I have to take time to heal because I took 6 weeks off from my practice, but I waited 10 months to do it. I compartmentalized that for 10 months. And then I took um uh, a month off and I hiked around Sedona and meditated every day. And I, that's when I had the epiphany of manure is fertilizer. Cause I got lost on a trail. I heard a horse. The woman was a woman was on a horse in the wilderness background. And she said, follow the horse. You know what? And I had an epiphany and I said, Hmm, um, manure is fertilizer. 
I can have post-traumatic growth from this too, but it doesn't mean I don't think about it. It's just that as soon as I have that negative thought in the morning, I see the image that I had to see, I'll switch it. I say, okay, that was then, this is now, and what can I do? And then I'll start meditating and it completely erases that. I've talked to so many different people, Mary, in this field. I've brought people on that have overcome such devastating things in their life. There's nothing worse than I recently brought my buddy on the podcast, longtime friend, whose uh, ex-wife and daughter were murdered several years ago. Mm. And uh, the daughter died in a house fire after the murder of the ex-wife. And and, um, he came on and talked about it openly. And I just, I assume you've probably talked to people that have experienced some extremely traumatic things in that regard. Losing a child has got to be at the top of the The list. The worst. It is the, it is at the top of the list. What do you have to say? What do you, what do you say to these people to help them? recover. And I, first of all, I don't try to make sense of the senseless and I don't let them either. I tell them that I don't know why this happened, that every day is going to be a challenge that I don't ever sugarcoat it, but they can, it will evolve. I don't believe in closure. I do believe in evolution of the pain. I don't believe in the stages of grief. Neither do the people who wrote about it, by the way, it's more cyclical you have amnesia. I deal with their acute stress and tell them it's going to take a while. I explain the chemistry of what's happening to them. The adrenaline, the cortisol, the numbing, the emotional flooding and numbing, flooding and numbing. And at least with some education of what they're feeling, they don't feel so alone. And again, that's why, you know, when my brother passed away, I told my supervisor um, who I went to see to get permission to take a walk. I said, well, you know, I'm not glad I've had acute stress, but I certainly, it's going to help me understand people who have it because it was an investigation, the same as your friends. I will never know if it was, I don't know what happened. We'll never know. And, you know, if something's under investigation for murder or suicide, or you you just, you don't know. Um, And, and the, the not knowing why, how, and all the questioning and, and then somewhere in that therapy when they're ready, not when I'm ready to tell them when they're ready to hear it. And it may be never sometimes, but I, I request that they entertain the idea of keeping a great big, I don't know file next to their head. Because if we try to make sense of the senseless or say, there's a reason for everything. And I tell them to just clap their hands over their ears. If people say, well, you know, there's a reason for everything. Or whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, these are not true statements. Challenge those myths. And I challenge those myths with them. Closure isn't possible. It's actually betraying the memory of the people. And so I would start with just asking them how they felt, what, what their physical and mental experiences are, what's keeping them up at night, what's driving them. Is it fury? Is it sadness? And then I start working with the emotions after I educate them on why they're having those emotions and, and dealing with their shock. Shock, I think shock is nature, nature's gift to the human body and animals go through it too, to numb that pain and compartmentalize it for a while. That's why there's amnesia. Battered women have that happen. They go into shock. They forget how bad it is. And so when people say, why doesn't she just leave? Or why doesn't he just leave? Uh, It's because they forget how bad it was. Their brain turns off to reduce the the severity, to keep your heart pumping, to keep your lungs working. 
and then you have some amnesia, then you forget how bad it is when they show up with the roses or the Rolls Royce. So right. hopefully then that you start helps. thinking maybe you're the crazy one. Oh, I, I, exactly. I made a little too much out of this. It wasn't that big of a yes. deal. Yes, right? exactly. And you, were, and you exactly. live in that vicious cycle. And, and that and you mentioned so, uh, battered wife syndrome or battered spouse syndrome, whatever it may be, because it can go either way. Um, you also mentioned, I know a big part of your practice is codependency. And I assume yes. that those kind of intertwine. Talk a little bit about codependency. Well, it's a loss of yourself caring for others. So you can see why. <laughs> you can see why just from those two stories. Yeah, like uh, you'd think I might have learned to be codependent when I was being thread through a windshield. <laughs> and I mean, that was just one of many instances I had to be an extension of that family image. And uh, so I, I've had to learn to laugh about it. In fact, when when what happened to my brother, I finally because humor sometimes it, even in your darkest times, like the darkest moment when is when truth comes to light. But I said, well, I got to tell all our family secrets to the state of Texas. And I'm glad Texas is such a big state. Cause we got a lot of secrets because mm. they asked, you know, when they're investigating something, they're going to ask. So uh, I had to um, I have to realize that, that these traumatic situations um can help me help other people as long as I keep mine in check, as long as I keep it in check. And, and I'll tell you, every good therapist will have a therapist. I, there's a new book out and I think Lori Gottlieb wrote it. Um, and it's a bestseller. It's written by a therapist and her therapist. So but again, it, back to the codependency part, Mary, the codependency is a big, it's a, it's a real mental issue for a lot of people. Correct. Mm -hmm. Regardless, yes, it, it might not even out. be in a relation. It could be in, in right. uh, talk a little bit about what, what different forms of codependency there are, and then how anyone that may be stuck in this codependent mindset, how they can start shifting away. Well, the codependent mindset, there's, there's a spectrum to it. There's either the doormat kind where I'll do anything you ask. I'll do anything you say. I just want to please you. Then there is the, I'll tell you what to do. I'll give you unsolicited advice. And I want to fix you. These are the fixers. So that spectrum is all about a fear of abandonment and a fear of not being pleasing or loved. Mm. Now, narcissists are driven by the fear of abandonment too. So do you see why a person who loves to be pleased, which is the narcissist, would be in a relationship with someone who loves to please like the codependent? It's this the is why you see- yeah, it is the match made. It's the match made in. It's the match made in hell for the codependent. It's a they don't match made it. in hell. It's yeah. a match made in hell because they believe the best and the worst of people. One of the researchers, when I was writing my book, um, wrote it in terms called pathological altruism. Love it. You're you're so altruistic and believe the best in people. It's pathological, and she brought up this is how people follow despots like um, Pol Pot or Hitler or Jim Jones and drink the Kool-Aid. She said, it's serious. Codependency can go to the very, very, very dark side. You can mm. be follow a cult and be, become so lost in yourself that you, it it's, can be devastating. So yes, it's a serious problem and it's not a formal disorder. It's not in the diagnostic and statistical manual mm. of the American psychiatric association, the DSM five, it's not in there. So how do people break free from that mindset? Well, would that there were, pills for it, but there's not, but there is therapy for it. They have got to start believing they matter too. narcissists are hyper-focused on themselves. Codependents are hyper-focused on other people. So I tell them to suspend that focus on other people and to focus it on themselves. I call codependency narcissism in reverse. 
So to try and, and then when they start feeling selfish, because they ultimately do they say, I feel I'm the narcissist. Now I'm selfish. I go, let the healing begin mm. because now they've gone from one extreme to the other and faced that spectrum and they find homeostasis, which is optimal. Homeostasis is when the body seeks balance. It also, the brain seeks balance and your emotions seek balance. We seek it psychologically. The, the world is seeking homeostasis right yes. now. Yes. You know, it is globally, mentally, physically, ecologically. I mean, you know, there's a fire here. There's an earthquake here. Everything's letting off steam. So. Yeah. You're always, always looking for that balance. That's yes. the place to be no matter what. It life. is. You don't want to be on the so far end of the spectrum, no matter what. No, it is. either one. You don't want to be a doormat and you don't want to be a controller. There's controlling codependence and they are really hard to treat. Mm. Um, they're the toughest of all because they're trying to get in my head. And I'm like, no, these are your sessions. <laughs> Interesting. It's tough to break through to them because they don't want to talk about themselves. Correct. (laughs) They they want to hear about you so they can latch onto something that you said. Yeah, they're trying to avoid. When you try to self-avoid, you create a void. (laughs) Yes. I have to go back, Mary, um, because you've alluded to your brother. And I just have to ask you. I mean, you've, you've implied that you've had to share all your family secrets. You've implied that there was a trial of sorts. The legal system was involved. Well, yeah, I mean, there was an investigation. He he um, passed away in his truck and and no one told me. And he was found on his ranch by hunters and his engine was still running uh, many, many hours later. And, you know, there were people out on that ranch that should have known where he was and that he where he wasn't as well. Mm. So, like I said, I'll never have those questions answered. Um after four years of investigating his death, they came up with hypertension. They amended his, birth, his death certificate. It said, it did say cause of death unknown. And then they amended it and said hypertension. So do you see, do, do you see the frustration there? Yeah. <laughs> Can you only imagine. Well, cause so you, have I to had think to, to, you have to think to yourself, what exactly was it? And you, you almost have to just accept, like you've said, there's a bucket of, I don't like what, okay. You don't know that you're not going to know the answer necessarily. No, I will never probably, unless someone tells the truth. And, and if, I, and if I, I really you did find out the answer, would that, what, what, how would that really change? It wouldn't change, change a thing. Right. It wouldn't change a thing. Absolutely. Because my, back to my buddy who shared the story and he says, you know, the, the hardest part is he wants to know if she tried to get out of the room. Exactly. When, when she, and she, he doesn't know for sure. He doesn't know if she was able to get out of the bed. Did she touch the doorknob? Was her hand burned? It's hard to talk about. Um, it is. And, and when, you know, when you do things like read an autopsy report and then you read police reports, I finally had to, I finally had to release those. I had to ceremoniously get rid of them. So I would, do you see the negative neural pathways? If I read that stuff over and over and over, I never looked at the pictures. I never did because I said, my imagination is going to, it's going to be far worse because, Mm -hmm. because I had been through full circle in this conversation, I had been at a horrible death scene at nine. I certainly didn't need to see anyone else deceased, especially somebody that, you know, that, that I knew. So, um, especially so that the point is, is will there ever be closure? No, but it sure does help me help people who've been through what your friend have been through when you don't know and you'll never know that I don't know file gets real thick. And yeah. sometimes you just got to clean some of it out. That's perfectly said. 
I wonder, do you think that if any, all these things happened to you growing up, starting with that event at nine years old, I'm sure there was others along the way, as you mentioned, that may have caused some pain or some trauma, like it does for so many people. Do, do you ever think to yourself, I don't know if I would have taken this career path had it not been for these traumatic events? Like, are you, well, Do you no, believe you would yeah. have gone this route? in life. Well, yeah. And I actually didn't go this route when I, when I, when I was little and I grew up on the beach. So here's what I always tell people too: wonderful things occur at the same time. Horrible things happen. So when I was nine years old, I was growing up on a beach. So I had, I had sandcastles to make them. There were good things happening to me. So integrate the wonderful with the horrible. I believed if I stayed in the water long enough, I could be a mermaid and swim far, far away. Well, that didn't work, but it's 14 years of age. I got certified to scuba dive. I mean, I was little and I was a girl and back then girls didn't do that, but I was certified and I was diving and scuba diving and um, that was beautiful. So I can say these things uh, affected me negatively, but they also affected me positively because then music became a healer. I broke my leg when I was 12. I could not walk for a year and a half and I pulled myself up to piano and I could write songs in my head. And I became a songwriter in Nashville for 20 years. Mm. So yeah, wonderful. And then later in life, I was writing at Warner Brothers and they sold to AOL. That's what Ted Turner did. He sold us. And I knew my contract wouldn't be renewed. No one's was. And so I said, okay, well, now I can, I'm going to have to go back to school. So I thought about law school and I did. I took the LSATs and I got in, but I said, I'm not a fighter. So then I said, wow, you know, uh, I've always been getting people in touch with their emotions as a songwriter. So I'm going to get people in touch with their emotions as a therapist. So I see the thread. I pulled the thread through it. And so I do meditation therapy. I do songwriting therapy, expressive arts therapy. So it's kind of like there was a, a divergence of skills and then a convergence. And I, because I used to work with my dad, that was just a natural career choice to go back to school at 45 and have to reemerge and reinvent that's so that's what happened. Interesting. Very interesting how different all of our paths are. And sometimes you might end up in the same profession as somebody else, but boy, the path to get there is a lot different than maybe the other person's path. Oh, it is. I mean, I was a theater major in school. Like I said, I wanted to run away from all the trauma and just join the circus and live in a fantasy world. And I did, <laughs> but I put myself through school as a stagehand because my dad did not want me to be in theater. And my first job out of college, I worked for Kiss for three years oh, doing wow. makeup and wardrobe. Yeah. So it's like, wow. I did see that. I did see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we may think so. Something's a detour, but a detour is just a detour. It's not a dead end. You can slow down and turn around and recalculate because I certainly wasn't in an authentic place there. I'm working for four rock stars was a piece of cake compared to my family. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, Gene Simmons helped me get to Nashville and then Nashville helped me get to where I am today. So I have, you know, it's the people we keep around us that insulate us. Like my brother said, my money insulates me. And I said, no, your money isolates you. You're living on too big of a place in the middle of nowhere in West Texas. And so I want people to get the impression that stay insulated, not isolated. COVID had us all isolated. The entire planet had some trauma symptom some form of PTSD, every, even the ones who were in, in denial, it's still, still a trauma every day, response. Every day I walk amongst people <laughs> and says, everyone is all screwed up. 
It's going to take yeah, some it's time just to get still people back denial. Control. When people said, oh, it's just a hoax, that is still a trauma response. Absolutely. The denial is a trauma response. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like we're all kind of seeking homeostasis. And I hope I hope this helps you. I certainly didn't plan to go down these avenues today, but they're but I hope they're helpful to someone. That's what there we do. Is this is what we do here. This is a little different than maybe some of your other ones, uh, interviews yeah. that you've done. We, we, we dig in a little bit. Let like me ask that. you before we finish it off, Mary, last question. Um, with all the things that you do and all the different types of techniques and therapies, and you've talked about music and meditation and all the things that you're helping your, your patients, your clients with, is there something that's like the most rewarding thing when you, when you help somebody through, and, and then if, if so, what exactly is that moment for you as the, as the coach, as the psychiatrist, psychologist? Oh, wow. What a beautiful question. Um, Cause rarely does anyone ask us how we feel. We, they just make jokes about us saying, how, do, how does that make you feel? We find it so rewarding when someone comes in truly suffering and we are not helping them. We're helping them help themselves. A good therapist helps someone listen to themselves and helps them find their own path. So you cannot imagine how rewarding it is when someone comes in, not necessarily with tragedy or trauma, but something they believe is impossible. That neuroplasticity thing again, it's impossible. There's no way I could finish school. I can't do this. I can't do that. And then to see, to see them go through guided imagery and talking interpersonal therapy uplifting real sincere compliments, finding out what's right with them instead of what's wrong with them. And then challenging them, just go to one semester. And then they'll, they'll text me their diploma after two years or three years. Mm. Very rewarding. I haven't even seen them. It's like, you said I could do it. I have them paste fake diplomas to their wall to keep their eye on that every day. It's a, it's a, it's a a visual aid. So it's very rewarding when I see, wow, they're holding that diploma. They said they could never have, and they do. So yes, when you have helped somebody reach their optimal life, it is rewarding because then it, it, it doesn't make sense of the senseless, but it sure, it sure gives you, um, it gives you a sense of satisfaction that we're not alone. We're bred for socialization. I mean, it is just innately one of our qualities. We are not bred for isolation. We are not put on this planet for that. Correct. Our brains are not hardwired for isolation. Let's not forget Ted Kaczynski, what happens when you isolate too long. Um, and he well, was- and he Just to interrupt you, if I, if I may, uh, to piggyback off of that, there's been many studies that show that people that are not that are isolated, they don't live as healthy and long of lives. Oh, that's one of my favorite Harvard study, the Robert Waldanger study. Yes. yes. Loneliness is dangerous. I've written a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Loneliness is dangerous. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It's, it is it's one of the things that nobody wants years. to talk. It's really not talked about enough, but it, oh, is, I know. it is a scary thing when you look at people that are in intimate relationships versus people that isolate and are lonely. And boy, the isolation and lonely just deteriorates the body and the mind and the soul. It does. And I do think it was, yes, it does. And I think that was part of my brother's problem. I mean, he was never married. He was much, very much alone. Wolfie was an attorney. He was always in a, like, you know, a verbal combat. And uh, during a a humorous thing is during uh, COVID, when COVID first began and we were totally locked down, uh, I wrote, I write for Daily Ohm and they asked me to write a course on how to overcome loneliness. And that I mentioned that study in there. And I was like, 
wow, I am writing a course on loneliness at the loneliest time in my life. <laughs> I mean, I have people yeah. around me and, you know, I have people here and, uh, but still I said, well, this will be interesting. This is going to be from the heart. Kind of like this conversation. Yeah. yeah. Loneliness is dangerous. Everyone they live alcoholics and people who smoke live longer than lonely people. Yeah. That's there yes. you go. You don't need Very. much more proof than that. Exactly. Hey, Mary, uh, Winter Haven Counseling, uh, where can people find you online? It's very easy. It's winterhavencounseling.com. And my name is spelled J-O-Y-E. So it's Mary Joy. That is my whole name. It's not like in the South, Mary Joy what? It's just Mary Joy, J-O-Y-E. And uh, they can find me on Psychology Today. My book is anywhere you can buy books. And, um, and What's daily the name of your book? Again, Mary, we'll link it up in the show notes. Codependent discovery and recovery, a holistic approach to healing and for yourself. So it's really just codependent discovery and recovery 2.0 mm, because it, it is, it's a holistic approach. It's different. Yes. It's not a 12 step kind of thing. Okay. So we'll, we'll link that in the show notes. We'll link the website. If you guys want to check out Mary, learn more about her, purchase her book, maybe work with her, 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 her company, check her out. Winterhavencounseling.com. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps, wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.